Hello and welcome to the final podcast for 2022. Thanks so much to all our guests for another amazing year of insight and discussion. And thanks to you, the listener. We're proud to have thousands of listeners from across 72 different countries. This episode focuses on AI and more specifically, generative AI. A lot of people will have recently seen the trending discussions and thought pieces on something called ChatGPT. To find out what it means for legal professionals, I spoke with Johnny Badrock, Senior Director for Data Services at Psych. In this episode, we explore the immediate applications for legal teams, consider its current limitations, and then we cast our eyes forward for what it might mean in the medium and long term. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Welcome, Johnny. Can you tell our listeners a bit about who you are? Hi, I'm Johnny Badrock, and I'm a Senior Director for Data Services at Psych. So I'm part of Psych's leadership team. And one of the things that I help our clients with is implementing AI for legal. So I spend a lot of my time working with kind of the data scientists and the developers in our team, thinking about kind of practical implications for how we can use AI to help lawyers do their jobs better. Brilliant. You're the right person to be speaking to because today's episode is all about generative AI. We actually, we I looked back in the archives, so we did an episode, one of our first episodes on Lodcast was about AI back in 2019, which I guess isn't that far ago, but it seems like a long time ago now. And the landscape has changed quite a lot since then, particularly for AI. And it feels like it's shifted quite a lot just the past couple of weeks with the, the kind of arrival of, of chat GPT, which we're going to get into but I thought, for starters, why don't we just start with what are we? What is ChatGPT? Yeah, definitely, it's a good observation, Mark. Because I think AI has moved on a lot in the last three years, and certainly in legal as well, and it will continue to do so. I think one of the nice things is that some of the stuff that we were talking about back in 2019 is now kind of practical implication has been embedded and has been used by corporations and law firms globally. So using AI for kind of contract review, contract extraction activities was was still being talked about a lot in 2018, 2019, and now is kind of implemented and embedded in a lot of processes. So it's really exciting just to show how much kind of things have moved on in the last few years. I think chat GPT is, is now kind of the next thing around the corner and is, is really interesting. There's been a lot of hype around it over the last few weeks. I've been speaking to a lot of people in legal, in tech, also not, and everybody seems to have heard of it, which is exciting. And it is really powerful. I think it's also really important to remember that it's still really early stage and it's still very much concept. So it's really interesting to show the art of what's possible and the direction of AI, but it's certainly nowhere near final product. And essentially what it is, is a really modern language processing model. So effectively, it's a chatbot, a little bit like what people are already used to. But what makes it really interesting is the quality of the kind of machine learning algorithms that sit underneath it. And I guess more importantly, what that's enabling is a conversational exchange to happen between human and machine for the first time. So those responses are generated. But what is actually really interesting is it allows the user to input their questions in a conversational manner. So historically, we kind of search engines. And when you're trying to use those chatbots for kind of utility companies, it takes about 30 attempts to try and get the right keyword in to get the answer that you want. Right. What's starting to be more interesting with GPT is actually it can start to interpret a little bit what you're trying to get to and it allows you to engage in a more conversational way. Yeah, and the observation that lots of people know about it is true. So not just not, not just te- technologists, it's anyone, a lot of my friends, a lot of lawyers, in-house leaders, non-legal people, non-tech people have heard about it. And I've certainly spent some time playing around with it. Just for, for the benefit of listeners, we'll we'll include a link to the 
basically, I think the best way is to go and have a look at it. it it's up and down a bit at the moment. I think the demand, they're up to a million users. There's a lot of people using it. So it's, it's a bit a hit and miss sometimes being able to use it, but it will add a link so you can go and have a look at it. But yeah, as you say, it's just basically, it's a, it's a large language model. It's, it's a super advanced chatbot and it's really impressive in its ability to do most stuff. And it's quite unimpressive in some areas, but we're going to get into that. We're going to get into some of the limitations. But before we do that, why don't who created ChatGPT? Yeah, so it's created by a, a research institute named OpenAI. OpenAI itself was set up around 2015, I think it was. And it's got prominent backers, including Elon Musk, who I'm sure most people listening have heard of. And it's now owned by a range of investors, including Microsoft and the Y Combinator. So it was a lot of money and a lot of, kind of power and a lot of interest backing this. And I guess we've got to remember, you know, the reason why it's got so much traction is because quite quite frankly, it's fun. It's fun to use. It's fun to mm. engage with. And I guess, you know, the next exciting bit will be where do we start to put practical applications around this kind of technology? But I think with that kind of backing, we can be fairly certain that it's not just going to kind of disappear anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. And I think fun is a fun point. I mean, I connected, obviously, we we work together, Johnny, but we connected over this because you did a LinkedIn post about it. And then I did one a few days later. I had just spent the weekend kind of playing around with it and was very, you know, I felt compelled to write about it because it was quite quite impressive in terms of its application for, I guess, thought leadership pieces. But also, like, you could tell it to write a poem about Roger Federer and Santa Claus and it would just do it instantly or, you know, whatever your, you know, topic of choice might be. I think that's where it really excels. So So it's been around for about a fortnight. People, you and I have both spent some time playing around with it. Why don't we go straight to initial impressions? What are you thinking straight off the bat? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, as I said before, I think it's fun and I think it's really impressive. And I think it's it's really helpful for kind of demonstrating to the wider world just how far AI has come in recent years and, and just how much further there is to go, but opening up kind of the ideas and concepts and, and kind of starting to provoke people into kind of potential practical use cases for it. You know, it's really fun for content creation. Like you said, you can write random poetry. I got it to write some LinkedIn posts for me about legal tech, which were actually pretty good and probably better than, than a lot of the posts that I read most. It's also really powerful that you can get it to write code as well. I don't know if you play with that part of it yet, Mark, but you can, it'll actually write kind of code for you to you know, create websites, great applications, which is really powerful. And I think I think it's a good kind of reminder for people and a good recognition. It puts it in the hands of everyday people so they can see just how powerful and practical it is. But it also serves a good reminder as to just how far AI is coming kind of more generally. So, you know, there's other use cases going on in the world, like image recognition now being used by doctors to for kind of a diagnosis of cancer. And it's picking up on kind of things that doctors otherwise miss um in kind of ct scans and things which is really impressive things like fully autonomous driving vehicles as well are now a really real thing there's lots of cities globally that are now kind of piloting and have you know tens hundreds of fully autonomous cars driving around cities picking people up so i think it's it's a lot of that you don't see it kind of sits in the background unless you're really interested in that kind of subject Mm -hmm. matter area so it's just a really fun way of kind of bringing it back to kind of everyday people who can log on and have a little bit of fun with it. But I think it's still important to know a bit of a minute for some of the limitations we'll probably talk about in a bit. It, it is just a bit of fun right now. And we've got to be really careful not to get too carried away, particularly in kind of its current its current guys. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my impressions are similar to yours. I haven't used the code part of it, but I know it's kind of the basis of GitHub's co-piloting feature, which I know a lot of coders are very impressed with. And you're right, I think it's a very prominent newsworthy application of AI and I think it's I think it's captured so much attention because because of the fun element but also 
it is it can genuinely write quite good stuff. That was my, my impression. Now it, it falls down very quickly in certain areas like maths, which we'll get to. But but it is very impressive. Now most of our listeners are lawyers, so let's get into the applications for lawyers and law students, and, and that's your also your area of expertise, Johnny, being our AI expert. One thing before we before we get into to your thoughts on the applications, I did see that it did just pass the bar exam. Someone fed it some of those questions and it got 70%, which, you know, if you're randomly picking, it'd be almost impossible to get that. So I know there are some very obvious applications for law students out there, but, but maybe we could, we could touch on what it means for, you know, qualified lawyers. Yeah. So I think, and you know, a little bit, I guess we could talk about the theory a little bit and some of the limitations and how it works and I guess why it's able to do some of what you've just discussed. And and essentially, that's because it's got a lot of training data. And so presumably in that training data, there were probably some good examples of bar exam papers that have been written before, which are good quality ones. So essentially, all this is, is it's a little bit like a search engine. It just enables that kind of natural conversational piece of the front end to it. So essentially, somewhere sat in the corpus of information that it's been trained on will have been some good answers to those exam questions. So essentially, all it's doing is recalling that for you and pulling it back and possibly piecing a couple of pieces together. So in theory, that's that's how it's able to do that. It's not necessarily intelligent. It's just good at finding information. <laughs> it's just good at finding information and recalling that information. And and I think you know the current practical uses for lawyers are fairly limited because it, what it hasn't been pr- provided and trained upon is lots of legal context and content. But I guess this is showing the future of where it can go. So AI is already used inside of law for kind of legal research for big kind of providers like LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters and others are kind of using AI to help improve searches, but it's still relying on that kind of search engine front end. So I think in time where we'll get to is it will become kind of a powerful research tool. It will become a powerful document drafter and content generator. And in theory, a lot of this is is kind of possible now, but what we need to do is then connect up these algorithms to really good quality database and data sources so that then it becomes kind of reliable information. There's still there's still then arguments as to, you know, where a lawyer kind of makes their money and makes the difference is by interpreting that information and providing advice on it. But it will be a really powerful way of kind of getting that information to those lawyers' fingertips kind of much more quickly and a lot more easier than we can today. Because most lawyers I talk to don't even really know how to use search engines properly. So <laughs> I think that's the kind of enabler this will be. So I think another few years' time as these algorithms improve and as we connect it up to kind of good quality databases you know, we will start to see it really assisting with kind of those, you know, legal questions and answering kind of legal questions based on that knowledge that sat sat in its database. That's right. Uh, Richard Tromans from The Artificial Lawyer wrote a good piece last week and he kind of he kind of viewed applications as Q&A, like you, what you were just talking about. It, it summarises stuff pretty well. I think you can put in, you know, you can put in cases or case law and get it to summarise stuff. It does text completion like people might be familiar with in other more common cases like mobile phone text completion, but it's a bit more advanced than that. Potentially whole document creation, but I think you're right. The, the data set it uses is what mainly Google and Wikipedia and books I, yeah. I don't think it's been had access to proprietary information such such like that held by LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters. And because of that, it doesn't have maintained information. You definitely need to be careful of the accuracy. I think it gives a lot of incorrect, just wrong answers. So we need to be, be conscious of that. One really interesting application I saw today was the do not pay. This is, I guess, some more consumer law applications than, than commercial or in-house legal. But on the consumer side, that they got... The, basically a, a GPT bot 
to successfully negotiate a reduction with uh, Comcast, a provider in, in, in America. So there's some interesting applications around potentially negotiations and even at a point where you may have uh, bots or AI trained models negotiating with each other on, on behalf of companies who've trained it with their various positions and risk thresholds. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, it's a little bit kind of tangential to law. And to be honest, I don't think it's getting enough coverage at the minute in the legal sector. But there are huge investments being made at the minute around kind of logistics technology, where kind of Maersk and various other big organizations are now investing heavily and there's various kind of venture funds um, setting up procurement negotiation technology that's based on AI. So for those repetitive negotiations, using AI to negotiate on behalf of both parties to come to like an acceptable position, like that's really real and is happening today, not necessarily from a legal perspective, but certainly on those logistics contracts that's here and now and is developing fairly quickly. So you can definitely see a world not too far away where that will start to happen. And, it, and you know, it comes back to a lot of the principles then around automation. Automation in legal has been going on for 10, 15, 20 years, probably further. And it, it all becomes about the right use cases. So at the minute, what we're automating are those kind of high volume, low value contracts, where we're trying to take the lawyer out of the room and introduce governance for other people to enable that. And that's where we'll be with AI. It's still not going to fully replace humans. It's still not going to fully replace lawyers. And it's probably not going to be doing the really kind of sophisticated, high value negotiations where there's a lot of other things that come into this around kind of commerciality and human intelligence and human emotion. And and so all of those tactics, you know, AI is not going to be able to interpret and, and respond to. Absolutely. And I think that that's some, some good summaries of some applications. And I think, you know, we, as you mentioned earlier, we have to tread carefully for the moment, but it's not too hard to imagine in a couple of years' time when you have, you know, specific legally trained AIs to be able to do a lot of what we're talking about there. A lot of the negotiation, the whole document creation, Q&A, and things like that. Let's quickly talk about the limitations because I think they're powerful and, and worth talking about. I wanted to start with um, Sam Altman's the CEO of OpenAI, and he tweeted a couple of days ago, chat GPT is incredibly limited but good enough at some things to create a misleading impression of greatness. It's a mistake to be relying on it for anything important right now. It's a preview of progress. We have lots of work to do on the robustness and truthfulness. I think that's a pretty good place to start in terms of limitation. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I completely agree. In terms of the limitations, you know, we touched on it before. It's limited to the data that it's been trained on. So that content hasn't been curated. It's not been curated mm -hmm. for a specific purpose. It's just a whole bunch of stuff kind of from the internet information that's available um, that's been pulled together. And there's even kind of a timing point on that as well. So I think the most recent information that's in that database was from around September 2021. So it's already 15, 16 months out of date. So there's a point around that in terms of the quality of information that's in there. I think the second point to, to note as well that we've got to remember is at the end of the day, this is just a statistical model and it's all based on probabilities. So where you were talking before about it, you know, quite simply getting things wrong, that's because it's based on probabilities and it will make mistakes. I mean, the same that humans will, the same that subject matter experts do. If you've not seen something before, then you might not know about it. You know, it's the same with lawyers. If it's a new piece of case law from last week that the lawyer hasn't quite seen yet, then their answer is going to be incorrect because they've not got the latest information to kind of include in their response. So, you know, there's a, there's a point around kind of timing, there's a point around kind of probability and getting the answer right. And I think the other key thing as well is, whilst it's generating human-like responses, you know, it's not sentient and it doesn't actually understand 
and properly understand or comprehend the meaning of the words. So again, what it's producing back to you isn't always relevant and perfect because whilst on the algorithms, it can kind of interpret based on the words that you've got there, what it thinks you're trying to say, it doesn't properly understand the true meaning. And, you know, we see this with humans, you know, different kind of dialects, different people kind of translating from different languages. You sometimes lose that meaning by not understanding kind of a local, you know, the local colloquialism or whatever it might be. And that just becomes even more prevalent when we're kind of dealing with AI. So, you know, we've got to remember that whilst it looks like it's kind of been really intelligent and human-like, it's not quite there yet. Absolutely. And as you say, it's, it's based on probabilities. And if my World Cup tips or anything to go by, that's not a guarantee for success. There's, I, I think you may have been alluding to it, but I'm going to add a link in the show notes to a, a paper called On the Dangers of Stochastic Parrots. Can language models be too big? It's a really good paper. I mean, it's a little bit dense potentially for some some people, including myself. But there's one one part where they describe a language model as a, and I'm just going to read it verbatim, is a system for haphazardly stitching together sequences of linguistic forms it has, it has observed in its vast training data according to probabilistic information about how they combine without any reference to meaning, a stochastic parrot. And I think that's, <laughs> I can't put it better than that, but that's basically what you're getting at, right? It's just, it's not, it's not actually meaning, it's just probabilities and, and putting words or tokens together. Yeah, absolutely. That, that said it better than I did. Um, I'll take that quote for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as I said, I'll add a link to that paper. It's, it's, it's worth reading and it and definitely goes into a bit more detail around the limitations, but also some of the implications um, in terms of finance and, and environment and also some of the dangers of, I guess, biased information being used to train the model. That's, I don't think we'll go any more into that. It's a little bit beyond the scope of this podcast. As I said, I'll put a link in the show notes to the paper for those who want to dive a bit more deeper into the limitations surrounding large language models. Penultimate question for us, Johnny, is if we cast our eyes forward, what do we think it means for lawyers in the medium to long term? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And, you know, like all new or exciting technologies, you know, it's still a concept. There's still a lot to be worked out. We still need to think about how we implement this and how it can be used properly. But I think the really interesting bit for me is is, is that this shows a pathway to enabling lawyers to interact essentially with information systems, but at a human level. So, you know, as I said before, you know, a lot of lawyers aren't IT trained and they don't understand how to interact properly with things like search engines. So removing the need for them to have that knowledge about how to do search properly is a really powerful thing to do. So they can just ask straightforward questions in the language that they'd naturally ask it in and get the answers that the otherwise we'll try and get from some of those legal databases. I think that in itself is extremely powerful and we need to we need to kind of not overlook that. It might be slightly more boring than some of the use cases that we're seeing out there in the real world, but actually it's really real and really powerful for, for kind of lawyers. And I think it means that, you know, in turn, it will enable lawyers to, to do kind of better researching. And I think, you know, we'll see a world where this kind of system will then be helping with doing kind of research tasks, generating and creating new documents and I think you touched upon it early, but even providing kind of guidance notes or advice as well. So a lot of lawyers today, like we've got to remember, a lot of a lawyer's job today is working from precedents that have been set before, whether that's kind of in case law or in documents or in different forms. Even advice notes that lawyers are producing for clients often come from lots of advice notes that have gone before and comp- compiling that and compiling the best ones and applying it to the facts. And I think you could start to see, if you think about how this these systems are working and the stuff that we've talked about today, 
you can see a lot of parallels there. So you could see this starting to help lawyers to kind of collect all of that information to produce kind of advice nurse going forward. I think in the consumer world as well, and again, you touched upon this earlier, but enabling you know non-lawyers, people who don't understand legalese, to be able to interact with kind of legal content and ask questions around what does this mean? What does this mean for me? And getting some kind of form of answer back, again, is, is really powerful and you know, touched upon the whole kind of access to justice point, which is which is really important. And that's where organizations like Do Not Pay are doing some really cool work at the minute. So I think I think lots to come. I think lots of other kind of tangential technology and other developments that will happen alongside it. But it's just another example of, of seeing how kind of the world is changing and how this will have impact on law as many other kind of professions and, and areas. Brilliant. Well, I can't add anything more sensible than that. So I wanted to end the podcast, Johnny, by saying, is there there anything you think we missed, any other points you'd like to make before we sign off? I mean, there's there's lots we could talk about, but I think, you know, I think it's interesting. It's here. It's exciting. It's going to open up a lot of opportunity, but we just need to remind people that, you know, it's not replacing lawyers just yet and there's still a lot of work to go. Absolutely. No one's out of their day job yet. We'll be watching this area with a lot of interest. And if anything more dramatic happens, we'll be doing another podcast, I'm sure, Johnny. But it just leaves me to say thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks very much.